Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, fellow time travelers. Always lovely to have you with me for the uh, journey through space and time. I always need to and want to pause and say thanks to all the people who support the podcast series that Paul and I do by signing up to the patreon.com site. It's that uh, financial contribution that makes everything else possible. So if you're already there, if you're already a a member of the patreon.com site, thank you very much. If you're not a member and you'd like to join, go to patreon.com, look for me by name and, uh, and go through the rigmarole. Sign up. It's cheaper if you join by the year, but you can pay by the month. And by so doing, you get access to everything that we do, podcasts, question and answers, competitions. And you become part of a family of of like-minded people who share thoughts and comments and ideas about about current affairs, about history. We're, We're all just people who are interested in history and the way in which it can inform our understanding of the present and the future. The podcast series depends on the Patreon.com site, so go there and get involved. Sign up, become part of the family. That's the advert over. It's now time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. A powerful controlling shadow stretching out and covering a land from China to Europe and the Siberian coast. Arrogant, proud and driven to dominate any and all. The last of the great Mongol Khan's flexing muscles. 140,000 soldiers and 4,000 warships bristling with arms and armaments launch an invasion of Japan. Hopelessly outnumbered, the Japanese forces face certain death when suddenly a typhoon raises its terrifying head and a Japanese legend is born, Kamikaze, the Divine Wind. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi, Neil. In the last episode, we travelled with you to the land of the long white cloud, the final piece in the jigsaw which saw the completion of the human settlement of the world. Where are we this week? Ah, yes, Paul, fond memories of Aotearoa, the land of the long white cloud. Last week's episode was in the middle of the 13th century when Coupe, the great explorer, set off into the vast openness of the Pacific Ocean. This week our journey through the history of the world continues. It's now the year 1281 and we're off to Japan's Hakata Bay with a mighty invasion force sent by one of the great names of history, Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan. 
We're in the East, uh, and specifically we're looking at China and Japan. So big, big swatch of uh, turf, and we are in, in terms of when, we are in the middle, the second half of the 13th century. It's a great story, this one. I mean, I, they're all great stories, but this one uh, ca- captures my imagination because it's full of uh, evocative words. N- none more evocative, I suppose, in many ways than kamikaze. We've all got ideas about kamikaze. You say the word and people instantly understand that you're talking about Japanese World War II pilots in those planes full of explosives, flying them into United States aircraft carriers and so on. Kamikaze. So it means, it's like suicide bomber. It's one of those instantly terrifying words because you know you're dealing with somebody who's decided that they don't need to stay alive if they can just do you some harm. But kamikaze means divine wind. It's like the hand of God. It's that kind of thinking. It's where you're expecting or channeling the intervention of transcendental power. So that's where we are, when we are. Also equally evocative, uh, this time in terms of a person, Kublai Khan. Yeah. Um, It's a big name, isn't it? It's a big name. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a saintly pleasure dome decree and all that. One of those, it's just, wow, Kublai Khan. It's it's amazing. Marco Polo and, and... it takes everyone back to their to their uh, early school days, so it's it's got a lot. This one. So let's think about how this started to unfold. Kublai Khan he's descended from the great Mongol Khans, Genghis Khan, right? He's grandson of Genghis Khan, who we've so recently encountered, and in the grand tradition of the great Khan. He's in control and fighting for control of a huge swatch of territory, specifically China. He's already got Mongolia in large part uh, and Korea. Everyone thinks about other empires really before they think about the the Mongol empires, Alexander the Great, Rome. But what was achieved by the by the Mongol Khans is, is just extraordinary. So Kublai Khan was connected by blood or by marriage to other. Mongol leaders and collectively at this time in the 13th century they're holding together an empire that stretches from Hungary in the west to to the Siberian Pacific coast it's mind-boggling multiple time zones you might say it's this huge territory after Kublai Khan's time eventually we get to a character like uh, Timur the Lame whose name gets corrupted into Tamerlane uh, who's a, another of these figures from the past that everyone's heard of but, but few people can describe he for example in his time we'll get to him but he comes up against uh, uh, an Ottoman an Ottoman Turk called Bajazit Bajazit II Bajazit II makes the mistake of proclaiming to the wider world that he is the greatest leader in the world and Tamerlane hears this and says oh do you think so? <laughs> and Tamerlane decide, goes after him and brings him to battle Uh, and utterly destroys him, utterly destroys his army, takes Bajazet prisoner, and according to the legend, keeps him in a specially built iron cage for 20 years that he pulls behind his dogs. Don't know. Don't know if that's the... Who can say exactly what happened? But you know, th- these are the kind of people we're dealing with. Very proud, very capable, uh, very cruel, and determined to get their way. And Kublai Khan, he's the mould. He's one of the archetypes of all of that. 
So, in, let's say, in 1266, all right, so Kublai Khan is, at this point, is still in the thick of it with the Song Dynasty. Um, and what he does, all these guys, they've got this idea in their heads, culturally and religiously, they believe that they are put on earth by God to rule over everybody else. So they, they have it in their heads that they don't just rule the, the territory that they can see and directly control. They believe that they run the whole place, even places that they don't know exist. It's all mine, okay? And, and they're in the habit of sending emissaries to remind everyone that this is the case and telling them to send back tribute. So in 1266, while he's still up to his knees in, in blood and gore with the Song Dynasty, Kublai Khan sends emissaries to Japan, to the Twin Islands of Japan, uh, to demand tribute from them. And to begin with, and for years, year in and year out, the emissaries are just sent away, empty-handed. Kublai Khan does not accept this for a moment, and he keeps at it. So every year, for five years or so, he sends emissaries. Japan, by this point, ever since the time of the Fujiwara family, Japan has been a territory ruled by rival families, like, like mafia clans, crime syndicates. At any given moment, there's somebody that's the top dog, but it's like sharks, bigger shark, but lots of not much smaller sharks circling constantly. And the whole thing is run by the shogun, who is the military commander. There is an emperor. There's an emperor of Japan at any given moment, but the emperor of Japan at any given moment is controlled by the shogun. He either agrees with what the shogun wants to do and is left in peace, or every now and again an emperor might decide to maybe dispute what a shogun is doing, but then they just get crushed. So the, the, the shogun runs it. So during this time when Kublai Khan is sending his emissaries to try and exact uh, tribute from Japan, the shogun is just sending out fleets of ships to intercept the incoming Chinese fleet and send it back. So this this is what happens, this is, you know, over and over again. Finally, in 1274, when Kublai Khan is increasingly confident that he's pretty much got China under control, he's pretty much defeated the Song Dynasty, he sends an armada 900 ships strong. Now think about that, this is the 13th century, and he sends 900 ships. So if you picture the peninsula of Korea, he's control, Kublai Khan controls that, and the nearest bit of Japan is Kyushu Island. This is where he sends his, his armada of ships, and they land in Hakata Bay in Kyushu. Um, he, he unloads thousands of warriors. The Japanese are structured around the samurai, these knights in armour, not metal armour, but they're knights in armour nonetheless. They've evolved this Bushido, this way of the warrior, where honour demands that they engage in single combat, like the champions of old. So, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's tragic in a sense. So you've got the, 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 the Chinese forces uh, in a mass, and every now and again, a samurai will step forward out of the Japanese ranks, looking to engage with a, an adversary. And the Chinese just go after them en masse. It's like a lone stag, suddenly surrounded by thousands of wolves. So one by one, the samurai, because of this ridiculously inappropriate uh, tactic, 
are just getting cut to pieces, uh, and it's a, it's been a it's a slaughter, and the inevitable would have happened. But but this is twelve seventy four. What happens is the obviously the fleet is out in the bay, and a storm comes, a typhoon, okay, a hurricane at sea, and the. The ship's captains and whatever, the sailors, they try to get the ships out into deeper water where they've got a better chance of surviving what's going on. But it's to no avail and something between a third and a half of the ships are sent to the bottom of the sea. And that's it. The the attempted invasion is now over. So although the Japanese were really on the point of being overwhelmed by the stupidity of their tactics, nature intervenes effectively on their behalf and the, the invasion's brought to an end and the ships limp back home to tell Kublai Khan what's happened. So it's a great result for the, for the Japanese. They wouldn't have been able to survive otherwise. Now the thing is, uh, Kublai Khan is not thwarted and he decides to go for it again and he does it It's like seven years later, 1281, and this time he sends 140,000 men in 4,000 ships. It's still a Japan of an emperor. It's still a Japan where the real power is the shogun. Uh, and it's still the case that rival families are, are, are circling one another. Japan exists in a state of, you could probably usefully describe it as managed anarchy. There's a simmering chaos all the time. Because the, the families are just looking for outright control. And it means that the, the greater good to contemplate tackling a larger foe, like China, for example, just isn't on their radar. And so they are institutionally weakened by this obsession that they've got with doing things the way they're doing them. Nonetheless, although that was the state of play in Japan, the shogun knew what was coming. This process, this tactic, this self-belief that Kublai Khan has, where he, he keeps sending these emissaries who say, who turn up in the in the in the court of the of the emperor, or they go to the shogun and they say. You have to send back tribute, which is, well, wealth, gifts, tax. I mean, call it whatever you want, but some about an act of, of submission, tribute. Ultimately, as well, the, the up the ante, demanding that the emperor himself come to the Chinese capital and kowtow. There's another word everyone's heard. Kowtow literally means lie flat on the floor and bump your head in an act of obeisance to your superior. This is what Kublai Khan is demanding of the Japanese emperor. And of course, the shogun won't let this happen. The emperor might be a puppet, but he's the shogun's puppet. And he's not having him go and uh, banging his head on the floor uh, for anybody else. Japan just won't wear it. And so what happens laterally is they just decapitate the emissaries and send word back to Kublai Khan saying, no, (laughs) this is simply not happening. It's extraordinary defiance in the face of what they're up against. So the Shogun knows there's trouble coming. And again, the geographical proximity of Kyushu Island to Korea means that he's 99% certain that when the next invasion comes, that's the way it'll come. The Shogun orders the construction of a wall across the bay to keep any invasion fleet out. So this time when the ships turn up, they're actually held at bay by this wall. They can't actually get in to the shallow water. And for a while there's a standoff. There's a kind of a Mexican standoff. The Chinese fleet is it's come from Korea and it's full of Korean conscripts. 
Korea is relatively recently conquered territory and this is where so many of the conscripts have been sent from and so needless to say their, their hearts aren't in it they're aboard ships they've been sent to Japan but they don't they're not they're not committed to the fight and the Japanese are determined to hold them at bay and there's a period of time where the, the, at night especially the samurai sail out in their own vessels and set fire to the to the Chinese invasion fleet have the Japanese got any chance against this huge fleet if they land? It's, a, it's hard to call, isn't it? But I would say the, the best guess would be no, they don't. They are numerically outnumbered. Um, the, the, the force arrayed against them is overwhelming on paper, added to which the Japanese insist on fighting in this archaic manner. Those Korean conscripts, let's say, when they come, they are simply prepared to act in coordinated units in, in, a, in a way that we would recognise. The Japanese, because of this thing they've got, because of this Bushido, the way of the warrior, the rival families, all of these individual knights, these samurai, they want the glory of, of single combat. It's hopelessly antiquated. They're using the wrong tactics in the wrong place at the wrong time against the wrong enemy. They face oblivion. They f- you know, all the smart money would say that on both occasions the deck was stacked in Kublai Khan's favour. The date is the 15th of August, 1281. What happens? A storm comes. The, the ship's captains, they're, they're experienced mariners, but there's nothing they can do about it. It, it comes at them so quickly that the, you know, the vast majority... Of, the, of Kublai Khan's fleet, like 4,000 strong, is just destroyed. It's just sent to the bottom of the sea. Handfuls of warriors make it ashore, swimming, whatever, floating ashore on wreckage, and the, the samurai just hunt them down, one by one and, and in groups, and, and slaughter every last one of them. So the whole thing, once again, is a disaster. <laughs> So this, this has happened to Kublai Khan for the second time. Okay, He goes for it in 1272. He's been at them for years, nipping away, nipping away, send emissaries, send, you know, to, accept that I'm the top dog. And, and he has now sent two enormous, fantastically expensive invasion fleets. And not once, but twice, he's had them destroyed by nature. Now, you can imagine the effect that it has on the Japanese psyche. From the 13th century onwards, they come to believe that no matter what happens, the divine wind will protect them. Think about um, uh, the Spanish Armada. You, you know, Francis Drake, Elizabeth I and all of that. That was a dicey situation when the Spanish fleet came across the channel. But it was largely destroyed by a storm. You know, the wind blew and they were scattered. And something of the same psychology settled in on the English at that point that God had favoured them God had sent the storm that's three centuries lying off three centuries in the future but the, the, double, the double win of the two storms that, that saved Japan when otherwise all was lost that's a hook that lodges deep in the Japanese psychology and the barb fixes and it never goes away this belief in the kamikaze the divine wind all the way up to and including war with the United States of America, World War II. 
And they believe, enough of them believe, that even against the might of the United States and everything that the United States can bring, the divine wind will will save them again. And that's why those pilots are called kamikaze, because they, they sort of take natural law into their own hands and imagine that they can they can become the divine wind, that they are. They will manifest the divine wind and push back the invader, just as happened during the time when they were under threat from Kublai Khan. Here comes the next big, superior in strength invader, but the divine wind will hold them back. And that, ultimately, was Japan's undoing. The sharpening of minds in Europe begins apace as universities spring up across the continent. First Bologna in Italy, then Oxford in England, Salamanca in Spain, Cambridge, Padua, Coimbra. The thinking of the Christian church is ever-present and ancient classical learning is fed into the mix by Islamic scholars. Great literary masterpieces are born in an intellectual ferment fusing the classical world with Christianity. A strong marriage of ideas that will stand the test of time. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be lovely to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. The social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Arch and Teddy. Finances by Catherine and Trudy. The post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.